then an unburial, right? Also known as the resurrection. Uh, well, I want to start off, though, by talking about Starbucks. How many of you go to Starbucks? I, I know some of you do. I see some of you. I, some of you this morning had Starbucks cups. I saw it already. All right. Well, the Starbucks at the Central Intelligence Agency in Langley, Virginia, is not allowed to take names for their orders. It's not business as usual for this Starbucks franchise that is housed in the CIA headquarters. This particular store, codenamed Store Number One, operates much differently than their other 12,000 plus stores across the United States. And not surprising, uh, it's not surprising because it has to accommodate these clandestine spy masters, right? Working for the most powerful spy organization in the world. So the, the seller of the skinny lattes, the double whatever cappuccinos, uh, uh, deep inside the agency's forested compound. And because the campus is just so highly secure, it's really an island in the midst of a forest, few people can leave campus for coffee. And so at times, the lines can stretch quite a ways uh, right outside what uh, some call the stealthy Starbucks. Now, the servers don't ask for the customer's name. You know, they normally write your name on the cup to kind of expedite things. But for undercover agents, they're uncomfortable when somebody asks for their name. Uh, and so even the receipts that the, the baristas ha hand back out only have store number one cryptically printed on them. And these baristas go through a pretty robust interview and background check, you might imagine, before they could even begin to work at CIA headquarters. Uh, there are nine baristas there, and whenever they leave their workstation at Starbucks, a CIA, a CIA minder has to escort them anywhere else on the, on the campus. And all of them are regularly briefed about security risks, and, and they have to report if anybody seems overly interested in where they work or ask too many questions about their employment. They can't even reveal to people at, at parties where they work. You know, that'd be pretty cool, right? Tell I work at the CIA. But they're not allowed to do that. They can only tell their friends and their family members and their acquaintances that they, they work in a federal building. So one barista said that she has come to recognize people just by their faces and their drinks. So she said there's, there's caramel macchiato guy and the iced, iced white mocha woman. And, uh, but she says, I have no idea what they do. I just know that they need coffee and a lot of it. <laughs> well, well, agents and even the baristas have to remain secretive and anonymous at CIA headquarters. There's no such thing as undercover Christians, right? Undercover Christians who follow that pattern in their daily lives. Jesus doesn't want us to be hidden followers. He wants us to shine as light, to be bold and to be open in our, our testimony as his disciples. Well, this morning in our journey through the Gospel of John, John introduces us to two formerly undercover followers who step out of the shadows, if you will, in order to care 
for Jesus in his burial. And so perhaps we can learn a bit from these first century disciples as we seek to follow Jesus today. And so in this next segment of John's gospel, he tells us about the burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, usually when, when we think about Jesus, we think about, you know, the great stuff, right? The Christmas story, we've got that coming up. Uh, the Lord's miracles, those are awesome. His wonderful teachings, no one ever spoke like he did. Of course, last week we looked at his great death on the cross and how significant that is or the glorious resurrection that we celebrate, especially on Easter Sunday. But this morning, I want to consider for a moment that very first Easter morning. What picture comes to mind? Well, probably for most of us, it's when the stone is rolled away, right? That's the big climax of the story. But do we ever stop to think about that heavy stone being rolled into place somebody had to do that we don't really probably think much about the the mechanics of you if you will of the lord's burial how did that take place in a rushed environment in just a few hours on on that that day when they took jesus off the cross but john has some important lessons i think for us that we can take from the burial of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all of the details, but I'd like for you to read with me John 19, verses 38 through, through 40, as together we begin to explore what happened after Jesus died. So let's le read these words together. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Amen. The word of God. So, two followers of Jesus. Up to this point, barely mentioned in the gospel accounts, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They are the ones who bury the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Well, First of all, because he died, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We looked at that last week. Remember, last week we, we read verse 30 of chapter 19. John tells us that when, when Jesus had received the sour wine, that he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We talked about the significance of that statement. It is finished. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross. But do you know that some people believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross? There, there are people out there, even people that claim to be Christians, who don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They say things like, oh, Jesus merely passed out from all the torture and the pain and the, the exhaustion from the crucifixion. And so when they took him down from the cross, he only seemed dead. 
People believe that. They literally think that Jesus was buried alive. And then after three days that he was somehow revived by the cool air of the tomb and that he walked out under his own power. Now, of course, to believe that, you would have to also believe that Jesus not only survived the horrors of the the beatings and the crucifixion and being pierced by a spear. We talked about all that last week. But you would also have to believe that he untangled himself from the heavy, tightly wound grave cloths full of spices. And then that he was able to move that giant stone that sealed the tomb all by himself and overpower the guards that were outside the tomb. You would need to believe that Jesus did all of that without having had any food or water for three days. But friends, we know, we know that Jesus was buried because he was dead. And we know that Jesus Christ was buried because he died on the cross for my sins, for your sins. We know that. And so what can we learn then from these formerly secret followers and from the burial of Jesus? Well, let's begin with this. Number one, God gives us courage to be committed. He gives us courage. God wants to give us the same kind of courage that we see in these two men who took charge of the Lord's burial. One of them was Joseph of Arimathea. In verse 38, we read that Joseph was uh, Joseph being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, a secret follower of Jesus for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body, and Pilate, Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. There's a lot of stuff wrapped up in those, that, that, that verse. Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he was a respected counselor who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke in his gospel says this about Joseph. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That is the Sanhedrin, the ruling 70. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So we have Joseph, a good and a godly man. But up to this point, he had been a secret disciple because he was afraid. He was afraid of the Christ rejecting Jewish leaders because they could really ruin Joseph's life if they wanted to. Joseph had been afraid. But here, in this passage, he goes to Pilate. Remember, we met Pilate last week. He was not a nice guy. He was not somebody to be trifled with. He's the governor. He's got this hate relationship with the Jewish leaders, people like Joseph. And so Joseph goes to this man and he boldly pleads for the body of Jesus. What happened? Why was Joseph suddenly so bold when for the last three years he'd been a secret follower of Jesus. 
I mean, this was a risky proposition for Joseph. On the one hand, by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, he certainly is now going to be identified as a follower of Jesus publicly, which, by the way, would not have increased his honor or his position of authority as a a leading member of the Sanhedrin. It could very well jeopardize his career, if not his life. And then on the other hand, by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, Joseph is surely risking at least criticism or even ostracism from the members of the high council. So where did Joseph get this sudden courage? Well, I think that it doesn't come from within Joseph but from the Lord, through Joseph. Friends, this example reminds us that there are times when we must act courageously in regards to our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Like Joseph, we might even have to risk our reputation or our position if we're going to acknowledge Jesus as our Lord. Some of you have had that experience, perhaps in the workplace or in your community or in your own families. You've entered into that risk and that difficulty. But if we're going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we must accept the risk in the challenging times that we live in. Will we trust that God will give us courage to stand committed for him like he does for Joseph. Well, let's consider what else we can learn from Jesus' burial. Not only does God give us courage to be committed, but number two, God wants us to care for his body. He wants us to care for his body. Let's read verses 41 and 42 of our text together. Now, near the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right, let's think about that for a moment. Joseph and Nicodemus take care of the Lord's physical body on that fateful day. But now, the church is the body of Christ. And all true Christians are part of the spiritual body of our risen Lord and Savior. God's word clearly confirms this truth over and over again in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter 12, for as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, he tells us that God the Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's something extremely significant about being 
a part of the body of Jesus Christ. It is so significant because he is the fullness of all things. He fills all in all. And when we are connected to the body, we are a part of that fullness. We experience that. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, for as the body, that's our human body, is one and has many parts, but all of the parts of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. We understand that, right? We got all these parts, fingers and toes and various other appendages and parts. And we like all the parts of our body, right? And we like it because they all work together and they belong together. And when there are parts missing, we don't like that. It's a good thing that we're all together. And like, so he uses that illustration and he says, likewise, we are part of the one body of Christ, by one spirit, he says. We were all baptized into one body. Whether we're Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. We belong together. The body of Christ is important. It's vital. And so God's word tells us that the church is the spiritual body of Christ made up of Christians from all over the world. And God wants us to take care of his body, just like Joseph and Nicodemus did for his physical body all those years ago. And you know, this account of these two men reminds me that sometimes we have to stand in the gap. We have to stand in the gap. That's what Joseph and Nicodemus were doing here. At this point, remember, most of those closest to Jesus had run away. Peter had denied him. Judas had betrayed him. And most of the rest were in hiding. And you know, friends, even God's best will get sick and tired and discouraged and scared sometimes. Even God's best can't always be there to do the job. And so God wants all of us to be willing to stand in the gap when called upon. I believe there will come a time when each of us, each of us who are uniquely qualified will care for the body of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea was an influential member of the high council. And so Joseph is uniquely qualified. He's one of only a very few people who would have had ready access to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And the prestige of his position gave weight to his request. You know, it was customary for the Romans to allow relatives of executed criminals to have the body, except in cases of treason. Now, we've already established last week that Pilate most certainly knew Jesus was no traitor, and Pilate knew that. But Joseph, he wasn't caring for the body of Jesus alone, was he? Joseph had another influential man with him to support his plea, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, we met him way back in chapter three when he came by at night to meet Jesus when no one else was around. And we might remember that 
we saw that he struggled. We, he struggled with accepting Jesus' teaching about being born again. But now we see both Joseph and Nicodemus risking it all. They're not sneaking in at night. They're not doing things in secret. They're boldly going to the governor. They're using their power and their privilege and their position to say, we want the body of Jesus. They risk it all to stand in the gap in order to care for the Lord's body. And they do that all publicly. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, he, uh, Matthew tells us a bit more. He tells us that Joseph laid Jesus in his own personal tomb, which had yet to be used. And so he risked his reputation, he risked his riches, his personal belongings, all to bless the body of Christ. And then what about Nicodemus? We read in verse 39, and it tells us that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and olives needed to prepare the body of the Lord. Can you imagine lugging 75 pounds of stuff out of the city, down and out to this place where you take care of the body of Jesus? And by the way, myrrh and aloes were extremely expensive in Jesus' day. And if we were to do the, the math by today's standards, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of about $200,000. Think about that. How'd you like to write that check? Nicodemus does. Because Nicodemus was willing to step up. And in verse 40 we read, they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Joseph and Nicodemus did that. Men of privilege, men of position. These are men that would have had servants. They wouldn't have done the kind of dirty work that is required to take care of a body. But they do it. They step into the gap. And friends, sometimes God wants us to step into the gap. He wants us to share our skills and our abilities, our resources, our finances, our know-how, our, our influence, our, I don't know, you fill in the, the blank there. He wants us to use what we have to care for his body, the church. Never think that you don't matter, that you're insignificant. Oh, somebody else will take care of that. Oh, I'm not qualified. Uh, no. We have self-esteem issues in the church and it shouldn't be there are no second class members of the body of christ each of us has something to share something we can do some experience that we can use in order to stand in the gap to care for the body of christ and the time may come perhaps the time will come when you are the only person who can make a difference, just like Joseph and Nicodemus were here. Courage to act. Care for his body. And a third lesson that we learn from the burial of Jesus. Number three, God invites us to be a part of his plan. 
a part of his plan. This is so important. We can see God's plan, uh, and it's so important. I want to read these verses together again. One more time, verses 41 and 42. Let's read this. Now, near the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. The word of God. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus certainly did not realize at that time that they were fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy in Scripture that was written some 700 years before Jesus was even born. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9 where the Bible says this about the promised Messiah. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus died on the cross, not because he did anything wrong, but because he had done everything right. Jesus died because he was the perfect spotless lamb of God who alone was able to die on the cross for all of our horrible sins. Jesus was willing to do that for us. That was God's plan. And now he invites us to be a part of that plan. Two formerly secret Christ followers helping to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy from God. Joseph and Nicodemus helped to carry out God's plan for our Savior, and their story becomes a part of God's Word so that we're reading and studying it 2,000 years later. Now, the plan is complete. But guess what? The story goes on. God is still working out his plan in the world today and he invites you and me to be a part of that plan. You see, church, God has a plan for our lives. And though there is much that we do not know about it, we surely know this. God's plan includes our salvation. That is why Joseph and Nicodemus had to bury Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. Thank God that three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. And now, God will save anyone, anyone who will turn to Jesus in faith and be born again, following Jesus as Lord. God's plan for our life includes salvation, but it also includes our service. God's plan includes the kind of courageous, wholehearted service that we see being lived out in the lives of Joseph and Nicodemus. And so God speaks to us. God speaks to us from the Lord's burial. He wants to give us the courage to be committed. He wants us to care for the body of Christ and he invites us to be a part of his plan. And so we can learn a lot from the burial of Jesus. 
But we also know that the plan doesn't end in that tomb, does it? It sure doesn't. And so let's consider next what we can learn from Jesus' unburial, also known as the resurrection. Now, we looked at this passage in depth back in April as we jumped ahead, remember, at Easter time to consider the resurrection. And next week, we're going to consider some of the various reactions to the resurrection. But for now, I want to conclude our time together by focusing on our friend John's initial reaction to the unburial. In chapter 20, John briefly describes some of the events surrounding the empty tomb. I say briefly because there are many more details in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than there are in John. But John's focus is different, isn't it? His focus is all about belief. Now, he is recorded Mary Magdalene's early morning discovery of the giant stone being rolled away and the empty tomb and her summoning Peter and John. He calls himself the one who Jesus loved. That's his secret code word for himself. John includes their race to the tomb and him winning the race. A little pride sneaking in there perhaps. And it includes what they found there. But I wanted to read just a part of those events in verses 4 through 10. So let's read this together, the words on the screen. John 20, beginning in verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must first rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. Amen. The word of God. And so the first question that comes to my mind as we think about John here is, in this context, just what is it that he believed? I mean, look at that verse 8 again. Speaking about himself, John says, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. So what did John believe? Well, certainly now John must believe Mary's report, right? That the stone's been rolled away and the body is gone. But don't you think he believed much more than that? I think that he believed that Jesus had somehow been raised from the dead. Though he had no clue about how or why. And I think the point here seems to be that John believed in the resurrection of our Lord before he even knew or realized that he was supposed to. And that is the point of God's plan of salvation, isn't it? God desires that we too will see and believe. 
Now, we've seen during our journey through John that throughout this gospel, this word believe is employed in various ways. And the content of what is believed is not always the same. Remember that the situation at that point in time, we're talking about the, during our Lord's earthly life and ministry, was very unique. The Messiah had come, but he'd not yet died. He'd not yet been buried. He'd not yet been resurrected or ascended to heaven. From John chapter 1, very early on, we see the disciples believing. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But it was something that they did not yet fully understand the meaning of. Not nearly the full meaning of it. Their belief, though, continued to grow and to change throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. You see, the belief of everyone at that time, prior to the Lord's resurrection and ascension, was less than full-fledged because they didn't have all the facts. So in context here, we must ask just what it is that John believed. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is a vital part of the gospel, which we too must believe. But once again, this is after he's been raised that we believe in it, right? And the meaning of his resurrection has been made clear to us through the record of Scripture. But it wasn't so for John. John believed. But what is it that he believed? Author Max Lucado tells a, an amazing story of a, a missionary in Brazil who discovered a, a tribe of Indians in a remote part of the jungle. And they lived near a very large river. And the tribe was in need of immediate medical attention because a, a contagious disease was ravaging the population. People were dying daily. Now there was a hospital not too terribly far away, across the river. But these Indians would not cross the river because they believed that it was inhabited by evil spirits. They'd grown up believing that. It had been handed down from generation to generation. So none of them had ever stepped foot into that river. They believed that to enter the water would mean certain death. Well, the missionary explained how he himself had crossed the river and was unharmed. But they weren't impressed. So then he took them to the bank of the river and he placed his hand into the water. They still weren't impressed and refused to try even that. So then he walked in the water up to his waist. And he took some of the water and he splashed it on his face and his head and laughed. But it didn't matter. They were still afraid to even touch that river, let alone enter it. So finally, the missionary dove into the river under the water. He swam across the river under the surface and emerged on the other side. He 
punched in triumphant, uh, triumphant fist into the air and, and showing he had entered the water and crossed the river and then he'd escaped. And it was only then, only then that the Indians broke out in a cheer and they followed him across that river. Well, friends, I want us to see this. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He entered the river of death and he came out on the other side. No wonder we celebrate the resurrection, his unburial. So when John entered that tomb, he saw and believed. And that was a decisive moment. He saw the evidence. And he began to turn it over in his mind. And he combined it with everything else that Jesus had said and done over the last three plus years. And the result was an increase in John's faith. Though he did not yet know everything, or even most everything, John reasoned that he knew enough to believe. And so he crossed the river. You see, friends, reason is a precious gift from the Lord. We use it all the time to draw conclusions about the world around us, don't we? And in the same way, when reason is enlightened by God's grace, it can help us to draw conclusions about God and his work in this world. When John entered that tomb, he made faith-filled conclusions based on what he saw. He took in all the evidence, the burial cloth, the empty tomb, Mary's story, his own memories of, of Jesus and the Lord's teachings, and he combined it with the faith that he already had. And he saw and he believed. And brothers and sisters, God desires that like John, we too will see and believe. Not because we know everything. Not because every single question we have is answered. No. But because it's just reasonable to do so. It makes sense to see and believe in Jesus. That is the lesson of the resurrection for John in this moment in time. And the reason that he wrote this gospel. We've looked at this verse many times. John's last statement at the end of his gospel in verse 31. But these are written that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John believed that. He crossed the river that day. Do you? Let's pray.